0: One of the features of studying Ecclesiastes this summer has been that it has caused us to think, to examine our perspective on life, to concentrate on what is really important. And just before Christoph speaks to us, we're going to sing again, but we're going to read Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 9 to chapter 12, verse 8. Before we do that it's 676 I think is the page number in the pew Bible if you want to follow it It says this be happy young man while you are young and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see but know that for all these things God will bring you to judgment So then banish anxiety from your heart. Cast off the troubles of your body. For youth and vigor are meaningless. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Before the days of trouble come. And the years approach when you'll say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark. And the clouds return after the rain. When the keepers of the house tremble. the strong men stoop when the grinders cease because they're few. And those looking through the windows grow dim. When the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades. And the men rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint. When men are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets. When the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags himself along. And desire no longer is stirred. Then man goes to his eternal home. And mourners go about the streets. Remember him. Before the silver cord is severed. Or the golden bowl is broken. Before the pitcher is shattered at the spring. Or the wheel broken at the well. And the dust returns to the ground it came from. And the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Folks... um please do have that
1: passage open before you. Um, Ecclesiastes isn't always immediately easy to interpret on first reading, so if you have that open before you and I try to to say a few things about it, try to interpret it, uh, hopefully together we can hear God's Word for us today. So it's our last, our last time in Ecclesiastes, depending on uh, what you do with your summers, you'll have heard one today is, is the least or eight of these uh, sermons where we've tried to grapple with this quite unique book. As we do so, as we set off into our our sermon today, I want to to try and use your imagination. I hope you're up for that. The thing I'm going to ask you to imagine isn't easy. Uh, I'm warning you of that before, before I start. It's a bit of a stretch, but I'm going to ask you anyway. I want you to imagine that you're speaking to a, a young person, a teenager or a young adult. Now, now, that in itself may not be too hard to imagine, but this is where it's going to get difficult. I want you to imagine you're speaking to a teenager or a young adult, and they're listening. All right? Do you see what I mean? It's a bit of a stretch, but, but stick with me. See if you can get there. You're talking to a teenager or a young adult. They lift their heads from the phone or the Xbox or whatever and they listen to what you're saying. I told you, not not easy, but but hold it. What are you going to say? What should we say to our young people? The writer to Ecclesiastes, who hasn't really been focusing on any particular age group, uh, or, or this, the preacher, I should say, chooses to end his book with a bit of a focus on a younger person. Chapter 11, verse 9, Be happy, young man, while you are young. Is there something in these verses about a younger person? Youth, he says, chapter 12, verse 1, is brief. We only have a short time, so make the most of your opportunities. We're all going to die, he says. We're going to suffer aging before that happens, so let's get on with living life to the full. Koheleth chooses to address the younger person on this important subject of how to live your youth well. We're going to notice three things. He does talk about aging and he talks about dying, but he only talks about those two things so that he can talk about life, living. But we'll deal quickly with the aging and the dying first so that we can then spend the rest of our time thinking about the life. Notice what he says about aging. It's really the opening five verses of chapter 12, if you have it open there before you. Different commentators have a, a different sort of take on what exactly is going on here. Uh, one commentator's, one strand of thinking is that he's talking somehow about a funeral in these first five verses. And I think that person's probably guided by verse five itself uh, and interpreted the whole thing in the light of that. It says there, then man goes to his eternal home and mourners go about in the streets. So it might be about a funeral. Others say, no, no, there's a whole lot of individual allegories in here. What, what the writer's doing is giving loads of veiled references to what happens to parts of our body as we age. I like this option because it's good crack. All right, look, look at what he says there. When the grinders cease because they are few. That's your teeth falling out, isn't it? Okay, there's, there's not a lot of grinding anymore because there aren't two that match up or that meet each other to grind. Those looking through the windows grows dim, or grow grow dim, so the eyes are going. No matter how many cataracts we get done, no matter how many lenses we wear, we still just can't see anything. It's all getting a bit dim. The sound of grinding fades. This guy's ready for his hearing aid, isn't he, or for a, an upgrade? As I say, much the way I enjoy the allegorical interpretation of these passages, I'm not sure in the end that it's the best way to interpret this. Look back to verse two: "The young person is to remember their creator in the days of their youth, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark." Sounds like creation turned around, put in reverse. Do you remember? God said, let there be light, and there was light. He created the sun, the moon, and the stars. Well, something's happening here that everything that God put in motion is is now being reversed. Creation's becoming undone. There's kind of like a a metaphorical darkness that the, the writer's describing here or the preacher. And people, the people mentioned in the text, they all respond in different ways. There's actually four different types of people. The strong men, so that's the, I don't know, is that the the wealthy, uh, those with social status. The keepers of the house, those are probably male servants, people who look after the household. The grinders then are the female servants because one of their big jobs every day is to grind some grain for flour. And those looking through the windows, well, we're going to say that those are, again, people of higher status, people who have enough time on their hands to sit looking out the window, watching the world go by. Four types of people. Noble people or wealthy people, but also their servants. Men, but also women. Women. It seems to me that those four categories are intended to cover the whole of humanity. We're all in this. Whatever the writer's talking about applies to all of us. And look at how they respond to their aging. They tremble and they stoop and they cease and they grow dim. Whatever way we take this, there's something about aging that's hard. There's something about it not being an easy experience to go through. And I'm conscious I'm talking to... But By the way, when I talk about people aging, I include myself in that. And I'm conscious that some people are further on into that journey. And, and verses like this maybe really resonate as you have struggles in life that you would never experienced before. My father-in-law says growing old is no joke. I have to hear that from my father-in-law because my dad didn't ever get to be old. Billy Graham, I think it was, who said growing old isn't for wimps. So we're thinking here about aging and we're just allowing a little bit of reality to kick in there. So in verses one to five, he's been talking about aging. I think by the time you get to verses six and seven, uh, Koheleth's talking then about, about death and about dying. His opening command, remember in verse one, was remember your creator in the days of your youth. He repeats the command, but now with a greater urgency, remember him. Before the silver cord is severed or the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher's shattered, at the spring or the wheel broken at the well. We could probably spend an age trying to work out every last part of this, but it is a silver cord and it's a golden bowl. Life's precious. I hope we know that. Life is precious. Look at those images, the, the middle too, the bowl that's broken, the pitcher that's shattered. One day my body's gonna break down so entirely that the life is just going to seep out of it like water from a bowl that's broken. That's what I'm being told here. Life's precious, but it's fleeting. We said a moment ago that Koheleth chooses to talk about aging and about death because he wants to talk about life. And that's where I want to go now. Where, where's the life stuff? <laughs> you say it, it's all all death and dying here. Look back to chapter uh, 11, verse 9, and you'll see it. Be happy, young man, while you're young. Let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see. But know that for all these things, God will bring you to judgment. Enjoy your life while you're young. Can't get away from it. That's what he's saying. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. He says, but remember that there's moral accountability in the universe. Pursue joy, but do it within the boundaries that God creates for us. It feels like one of those passages where if, if it didn't have that bit about God's judgment, we'd read it and think, wow, that's amazing. So God really wants us to enjoy life. But then we say, oh, but there's that bit of a judgment. It's always there, isn't it? I think that's a misreading. Don't allow the mention of judgment there to diminish the basic gist of what the writer's saying here. He says, God wants us to enjoy our lives. Look at verse 10. Banish anxiety from your heart. Cast off the troubles of your body. For youth and vigor are meaningless. He's really just reinforcing for the young man the message that he's been sharing right throughout this whole book. Embrace the life of that God's given you. Embrace it, body and soul. But don't do it by putting all your hope in your youth and your vitality because they, they are fleeting. They too will pass. Life's gonna become more challenging as time passes, is what I think the, the teacher says here to the young man. There is a difficult process of aging, there's a final journey of death. So remember your creator. Live the life that God's given you while you can. Folks, I want to pause now and to change gear and to slow down. I think we've probably got a handle on roughly what's going on in those verses, but we haven't really had a chance to reflect on this and, and how we how we receive this to ourselves. I want to come back to something we said in one of the very first sermons in this series, and that is to, to remember together the goodness of God, God's creation. We first noticed that the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes seemed very negative. We did two sermons before we could find anything that seemed remotely encouraging. But then at the end of chapter two, we saw the first glimpse of light, the first idea that God is good, and that he wants us to live a good life. It says there at the end of chapter two, a man can do nothing better than to eat and to drink and to find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? The writer seems to be saying, go and find joy in the life that God's given you. In fact, without God, you won't ever find the joy you were created for. I, I tried to tried to think about this this week, and actually since writing, being down in Tullymore the last few days has really helped me with this again. This world that God gave us, it's not just a world to keep us alive. It's a world of abundance. It's not just a world of enough you know, enough to, to help a species survive. It's far, far more than that. It's not just a world of function. You know, if, if it was your job or mine to create the world, it would be made of tarmac and plastic. But it's not. It's made of beautiful, organic things that grow. So this world is beautiful and it's full of abundance and we'd be crazy Absolutely crazy not to do what the writer says. Chapter 11, verse 9. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see. Folks, if if we're not enjoying life, we're, we're not doing the thing we were made for. I'm, don't, don't hear me say that there aren't problems in our lives, of course. But if you're not actively engaged in in, in looking for the joy in life, we're missing something of what God has for us. Once again, John Ames, the old pastor in Marilyn Robinson's Gilead, really helps me with this. He looks back on his life. He's a man who's, who knows he'll soon go to be with Jesus in heaven, but here's what he says. How I have loved this life. I found that a challenge. Just a beautiful, soft, sentence, but I just wanted to check in with myself. Am I loving the life God's given me? My Old Testament professor, Ian Proven, has a commentary on Ecclesiastes, which I've been, been using, and, and he, he makes a point. He says that guys like John Ames, who, who are religious and who love life, are actually a bit of a rare breed. Ian Proven asks this. Why is it that so many religious people's lives are characterized by fear and defensiveness, by a joy-suppressing legalism that's more concerned with doing the right thing than it is to revel in God's blessing? I think he's asking a really good question. What's more important, to do the right thing or to enjoy life? Koheleth says false dichotomy. The right thing to do is to enjoy life. This is what we were made for. This is the invitation that God has for us. Any creature, the right thing we can do is to let God be God, to align ourselves to his purposes. Living the lives that, that maybe we have as uh, believers in in Northern Ireland over the decades and and generations, to suggest that God's somehow a killjoy or or a buzzkill, as my teenage kids have have started to call me if I say anything that they don't like. I'd never heard that expression, but i quite like it. I've sort of taken it on and owned it a wee bit. I'm I'm a buzzkill. But we, we show a watching world a picture of God as if he's a killjoy and a buzzkill. It doesn't honor him. It's not who he is. He wants you and me and every man and woman to learn to enjoy life. I want to stick with this for just a moment because I think it's a, a big deal. I think this, this goes to the heart of a lot of Jesus' challenge If you remember Jesus' relationship with the Pharisees and the religious leaders, if you tried to summarize, you know, what's at the heart of that struggle? What's at the heart of that argument and debate? So often Jesus has to challenge them for their legalism, their defensive living, for their holding down of people. He had to show them again and again and again that they'd missed the point that Jesus wants us to enjoy life. That's what God made us for. Maybe, maybe the, the readers or maybe the teachers hadn't read Kohelet for a while. Maybe they need to go back to Ecclesiastes. Paul has to do the same thing in his letters. He has to remind the, the, the Jewish Christians particularly to come out from under a law that they weren't intended to be bound by. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Folks, Everything that God has created is good. But we we seem to, to find a way to doubt that. Come with me one last time. Chapter 11, verse 9. Know that for all these things, God will bring you to judgment. I encourage you not to see that as a dark cloud hanging over the very positive language that had gone before. I think we read a verse like that and we're very quick to assume that it means only one thing that God's going to judge the person who follows their heart but does so and goes to the wrong places and does the wrong things. Don't let's be too sure about that. Have a look. We've been told we're supposed to enjoy life and now we're going to be told that God's going to judge us for how we live. Might it be that part of God's judgment will fall on me if I fail to embrace and enjoy life? If I have too small a vision for what God created me for? If I have too narrow an idea of who he is and what he could possibly have for me? Might that be the thing above all that displeases a creator loving God? It's possible. Back to our opening question. What is it that our young people need to hear? Kohelet would say they need to hear two things. They need to be reminded of the reality of death and decay. Young people, if you have a, any young people near you, you'll know this. Uh, maybe you can remember it yourself. Maybe you're young enough to still feel this way. When you're young, you feel indestructible. Other people get old and die but it's never going to happen to me. We're like Liam Gallagher on that first. Do you remember Oasis made a good album? The first Oasis album, we're going to live forever. That's, that's, that's how the world looks when you're a teenager and maybe a young adult. Kohelet says, nonsense. Not true. most loving thing we can ever do with our kids and our young people is to speak truth to them. Maybe this is one of the truths that somehow they need to encounter. The second truth, Kohelet says, that our young people need to be told is of the absolute goodness of God, so they don't doubt that, and that they can start to live into that and live out of that. We need to show our kids that God is good, that his law is beautiful, we need to show them if we're still talking about the law or life with Jesus as something they should do, we need to stop. We need to talk about the life that God's created and life with Jesus as a thing that they're allowed to be a part of. Show them what an extraordinary privilege it is to live as a son or a daughter of our Father God. By the way, maybe you struggle to talk about these things in your house. Maybe you've been listening to me and you think, goodness, yeah, I know you're talking about talking to teenagers. and It's not easy, not always easy to have these conversations in that kind of explicit way. But, but you're doing this work, whether you're having those very profound conversations or not. The poet T.S. Eliot said something that I think is a, a wonderful but challenging truth, he said, the things that are taken for granted at home make a deeper impression upon children than what they are told. The things that are taken for granted, the way life's lived in a house, is far, far more formative than those moments when parents sit and look at kids and say, here's what you should do. They're watching, they're listening all the time. It's the lives we live before them that speak. So let's for their sake, enjoy life and invite them to do the same. Folks, we're coming just now to the end of our passage and to the end of this whole book. Um, I don't know whether you noticed it, but chapter 12, verse 8, the last verse that we read together, is almost a carbon copy of chapter 1, verse 2. The book ends that everything that Kohelet has taught starts in chapter 1, verse 2, finishes in chapter 12, verse 8, and I suppose it's, it's very famous. It feels a bit like a summary of everything that he's taught. Meaningless, meaningless, said the teacher, everything is meaningless. I, I just think that's weak. <laughs> if there's one thing we've learned in this series, we said it the first week, meaningless is an awful translation. It's not what, what he's been talking about these whole 12 chapters. If, if you think about what we have talked about today, about the goodness of God and the importance of living, that, that's not meaningless. That's, that's so meaningful. So really it's better to say, life is fleeting. It's short. So therefore enjoy it. If you were here for the first Sunday when we introduced this series, you might remember, don't worry if you don't, that I pointed out that the book actually has two characters associated with it. Kohelet, the, the teacher, started, his words were recorded for us from chapter 1, verse 2, right through to chapter 12, verse 8. But the book's actually given to us by an author who's recorded the teachings of Kohelet. And what we get at the end, the very end of the book, is the author's sort of um, summary, if you like, his evaluation and his invitation. And that's where we're going to finish for a couple more minutes. In verses 9 to 10, he tells us what he thinks of Kohelet. Basically, he seems to be saying, I think Kohelet's right? And I think he's wise. And if you think about it, that makes sense. It'd be kind of weird for him to go to all the trouble of recording all this if he thought it was nonsense. So he, he likes Kohelet's teaching. So, my question to you as we come to the end of this series, however much or little you heard of it, what do you make of his teaching of Kohelet? That's far more important. Do you think he's a wise guy? Will you allow his teaching to enter your consciousness? Start to be a part of your worldview? Some of you love Ecclesiastes and you've told me that. Others of you may well hate it. You may think it's it's pessimistic. Whether you've loved it or hated it, Maybe a quick glance at verse 11 will help you understand what it's supposed to be. Look at what it says there. The words of the teacher along with the words of the wise, they're like goads. So what's a goad? A goad is a stick. So if I was a shepherd in in these times, I would have had a stick and on the end of that stick there would have been some sharp items, maybe a nail or a you know a sharp piece of stone. So if I'm I'm shepherding herding my animals, I'll use that stick to to tap them and to, to keep them moving, keep them moving forward, keep them moving in the right direction. Painful, I would imagine, for the animal when it's given a whack with a stick, but good for it in the long run. That's what Kohelet's words are. That's how they're being described here. Maybe it's an admission that these aren't easy words. You see, sometimes wise teaching and real truth isn't nice. It's not supposed to be. It's not comfortable. Sometimes real wisdom has to shatter our illusions. Sometimes it has to to challenge our our folly. But if it's good wisdom and godly wisdom, it's always doing that with a purpose. It's to keep, keep me moving in the right direction. Keep me from going here or here and keep me going here. So... The shepherds used goads. The goads we're talking about here, this wise teaching, it comes finally, we're told, from one shepherd. Folks, there there are a lot of people God has used throughout the history of his people to bring wise words to his people. But they're always only under shepherds. There's one shepherd. And all life-giving words and wisdom come from him. So what do you make of Kohelet, Ecclesiastes? I'm going to say I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed reading it and teaching it. I I like his realism. I don't know if a a world has ever been as much in need as the world in which I live today. He strikes me as somebody who cuts through uh, the nonsense Speaks truth. He's helped me to see that there are some things in life I need to say no to if I'm to to learn to say yes to the things that God created me for and Jesus saved me for. I shouldn't be surprised by that as a follower of Jesus. Isn't it Jesus himself who said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What do you want? I want to choose life with Jesus Christ, and I want to enjoy it for God's glory. Shall we pray?